When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to The Movies That Made Me, the official podcast of Trailers From Hell. John Benet Milosevic. <laughs> exactly. I bet you have several of those. The Dom Disney. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, is that good? Good to see you. We had a nice chat. Are we recording? Yes, we're always recording. That's good. the fun good. thing about this. Always recording. Good. Now, 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 now you're going to steal all my names for your next next blockbuster. But <laughs> that is right. <laughs> it's is happened right. before. <laughs> I don't know why I actually, I don't usually, for some reason last night, I misheard someone say something. I thought, oh, that's a good, and I wrote down the name Mike Twat, which I'm going to have to use in a script sometime. There I don't know you why go. That, that yeah, me. and then there's the other one where if you see the Donna Karan and the DK logo, you uh, might uh, see a little resemblance and ours came first. Uh, <laughs> and then for uh, a parody of the Warner Brothers shield, um, there's a JB that I used instead of a WB, which they sent a threat letter to Sue after I'd only sold shirts with that on the back of two gigs in small college towns, but then they never followed up. So I still use it from time to time. And lo and behold, the Jonas brothers use it too. Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, you guys, uh, have you ever thought of recording with them? Uh, They've never asked. Ah, okay. Well, hopefully, hopefully they'll hear this and uh, your phone will ring because, uh, I would, I would actually, um, that would be an exciting collaboration. Maybe that, maybe they're still trying to get in the door and collaborate with Guar. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Jonas Brothers doing California Uberalis would be. Uh, I mean, I've been thrown in that meat grinder before on stage. <laughs> there was one time when my hair was a little darker and curlier and Bill Graham was still alive and they were playing at the Warfield, which is a Bill Graham Monopoly venue at the time. So I came out and claimed I was Bill Graham to an audience of 2,000 plus, and you're all scum. I've got your money. I think this music is shit. But all I want is, and you're you're shit. And you don't know anything about music. You don't know anything about Jerry Garcia. You didn't. At which point they threw Bill Graham in the meat grinder, and the crowd went wild. <laughs> Imagine. I'm sure there were some people who thought that was him. <laughs> a lot of people did actually that was quite funny um, right, i gotta turn my cell off here too uh, i don't yeah. start reading our, our phones ring all the time all right show joe you wait you wait to hear joe's ring it's it's fabulous no 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 it's it's not gonna ring i turned it off <laughs> I, I i don't even have a ringtone my ringer is never on it vibrates and that's it i don't know whether it's still a point there was a little while there a while ago now where the biggest revenue source for the whole music industry was ringtones. Yeah. 
everybody's got to be more conscious of making their music ringtone friendly and stuff. <laughs> Correct. It was, it was kind of like back when MTV started and the whole thing was, you know, there's no point in writing a song anymore unless there's a video to go with it. Absolutely. And I, the underground punk rocker, felt very threatened by that and ultimately came up with MTV Get Off the Air, yes. which I would still stand by, even though they did give us Beavis and Butthead. And for yeah. that, I'm very grateful. Yes, yes. Best but, thing and the only good thing, really, they ever did. I mean, remember early on, they not only had these corny lip sync videos when I grew up watching In Concert and Don Kirsch's Rock Concert, Midnight Special, and before that, Hullabaloo on prime, primetime TV in the mid-60s when I first got into rock and roll as a seven-year-old. Knew what I wanted to do the rest of my life. But, um, oh my God, are kids that will grow up wanting to be in videos now? I lip syncing is so stupid. And then there was an interview with Bob Pittman, the first head of NTV, where they were asking about why the videos are all by white people. And his reply was, we don't cater to fringe groups. We don't play country. We don't play black music. We don't cater to fringe groups. And finally, there was enough of a backlash that um, Columbia or Sony was going to pull Boy George when Culture Club was all the rage unless they'd finally play Michael Jackson. Right. But that's what they had to do to get Pittman to deviate from his white supremacist ways. Mm. Uh, he'd, he'd feel right at home now. <laughs> exactly. Trying to explain that time to people under 30 today because it's music is so decentralized now and so much more kind of well there's also nobody ever really made a movie about the inside of the Pittman era MTV mm. and whatnot it would be great if Mike Judge made it actually Beavis and Butthead go on a tour of the whole thing and wreck it all who knows um, <laughs> the closest was a movie I was actually in in a cameo that deserves a lot more attention than it's gotten called Tape Heads yes Remember Tape Heads? Sure. Very early. It's a great comedy. It was Mike Nesmith, you know, the guy who was yeah. in the Monkees years earlier, who's some credit with inventing the rock video as we know it. Although I've seen clips of Jimmy Rogers, the singing brakeman that were shot in the late 20s, or early 30s. Oh, sure. You yeah, know, people were Hank Williams' like in yeah. big influence and stuff. Um, we know, all know some of his songs. We don't know who he is. But anyway, Tape Heads had two up-and-coming actors, Tim Robbins and John, John Cusack, Cusack yep. as these bumbling video directors where every last thing went wrong, partly because they were naive in the ways that Nesmith thought MTV was. And, and eventually they accidentally come into a tape of a politician, kind of a family values guy, I think played by Clue Gulliger, who... Um, yep doing stuff in his bedroom and they don't even know they have it. They have no idea why people are trying to kill them. And I tried out for one of the hit men, but I re I appear later instead. And finally they're hired to shoot somebody's funeral. The memorial is the casket's role. Uh, you know, they failed with their, their video of the blender children, which was like a Motley Crue type thing with Stiv Bader's playing the bratty singer. And I think, Devo played a band in there and did the baby doll song. And um, there were some others, but anyway, they, they shoot this funeral and then MTV gets a hold of the funeral and awards them video of the year. 
Mm-hmm. And so then, right when they're going to show the video of the year at the MTV Awards, they realize what this other tape is and who's trying to kill them. And they may get killed within minutes. So they pull a Batman Joker or whatever and hack the thing and show the politician to the toll auditorium of the MTV Awards instead. And then who comes on the scene handy as an FBI agent arrest them for pornography on the spot but me? <laughs> oh, it's Moon Unit is in the screen. <laughs> yeah, you might hear, hear some little blips on my computer, folks. Uh, does he like to walk on your computer? Um, among other things, I don't. Mine, lo- mine loves to just get on the keyboard and and, and yeah, step on does. all the she's keys. Not, she's not <laughs> that into that. She'd rather find something to chew on, like a computer cord. And if you don't settle down, I'm throwing you off my desk yet again. All right. So, here. um. Slam dance. Very attractive Ooh. fuzzy cat. Oh, very attractive cat. Kitty. <laughs> I want yes. to drink your blood. Yes. And sometimes you, oh, here she comes. Should I, All should right. I, uh, should I uh, introduce the show and our guest, Joe? Or should we just? Yeah. No, let them guess. Let them guess. <laughs> if they haven't figured it out by now. <laughs> I just, it's so bizarre. I was in, I was in, and uh, Joe, as you know, we, we, we talked to us on the phone. We, um, we, we steadfastly refuse to talk about your work. We want to hear about other movies, but, uh, I'm happy to talk about your work uh, a little bit. Well, here's the other thing. <laughs> I, I, I think oh, apparently um, some weird thing that just got clicked on by guess who on the screen. Okay, I got to get rid of that. Well, I also bring up tape heads because forget me, I'm barely in the thing. Wearing the same suit I wore at the same time at the obscenity trial for the... Uh, Frankenchrist case. That's right. I, yeah. The, the, um. I knew to always bring my own costumes to movies just in case the one they have doesn't fit quite right or just doesn't look as good, whatever. So I arrest Robinson Cusack for porn, and that's the end of the movie. But for, forget me. The movie is a really good movie. It, it absolutely it's is. It's funny. Yes. It's dead on. And it didn't get to the attention or the respect it deserves. It was directed by Bill Fishman um, to the point where people have told me that when they see listings, filmographies for Robbins or Cusack, they don't tape heads is not listed, which what? is just unfortunate. I've, I've, I've seen Cusack uh, talk, uh, uh, say, say nice things about it on the Twitter. So, Oh, that's good. That's, that's, that's good. Good. yeah. It's a, it's a, and I remember at the time it was a movie that at least within certain circles was, it was one of those, uh, you know, there are certain movies that are basically tickets that get you into metaphorical clubs of coolness. And yeah, tape I, I found a DVD of, of it in a gas station in Idaho a few years <laughs> ago. Couldn't believe it. And only recently did I find a copy. There's a soundtrack album, too. Soundtrack? Wow. Yeah, and a lot of it is is Sam Moore and Junior Walker because they played the the lost soul duo, the swanky modes that Ooh, Robin swanky and Cusack's modes, characters. Yes. Oh my God. The cast party, the swanky modes performed for real, although it was as Junior Walker and Sam Moore doing Soul Man and all the other fun stuff. Jesus. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, that's incredible. I knew a guy who was a first AD on Yeah, I, Robbins and Cusack, I guess, were kind of fans of mine, which was really good because instead of being complete pricks, they were both really helpful. This is what's going to happen now. This is what you need to do now. Blah, no, don't do that. Do this. But then I, I improved a line in as I got them by the scuff of their shirts and stuff. You saw what we did to Jello Biafra, and they left <laughs> it. They kept it. <laughs> they kept it. 
And Robbins has kept in touch with me to some degree. I haven't run into Cusack since. Uh, well, I, I, um, I'll just sort of my, my, my entree to your music is kind of funny because I was a kid and I got to spend one year living in England going to school. And it was 78. And I remember being very, very conscious of the fact that I had gotten there too late for punk. Um, it was already over. It was already oh, dead. Oh, punk is never it was, over. Sometimes I know, it I'm, should I'm, be I'm in order kid. to be reborn. I'm a child. And I'm getting there and there's all this good stuff. I mean, the Clash right, what year? What Call. year was that? What year was 78. 78. The Clash 78. came out with London Calling that year. And I'm going, yeah, this is great. But well, that was 1980. Oh, 78? London Calling? 1980. London Calling was... was I know which was, place I was living in at the time when London Calling arrived at the house via a roommate the day it came out. It was 1980. Lord, I will, I will, I will, I will. Oh, if you're, if you're right and, and, and he's wrong, he'll cut it out. <laughs> uh, here we go. Originally, oh, oh, maybe here, originally at least in the United Kingdom, because I was there 78 to 79, came out 14th December 1979. So, oh, so okay. Compromise. Okay. You're uh, both wrong. But, but uh, the. Um, right, right after I helped force Diane Frankenfeinswine, the Wicked Witch of the West, into a ru- runoff for San Francisco mayor. But the uh, uh, but I remember my British roommate had the single "The California Uber Alice," and I remember thinking, right. "I've come all the way over here to Miss Punk, and and it's actually happening back home." That was that was my sort of revel. That yeah, was my- it was much more visceral underground by then because the yeah. major labels were not going to touch punk. They decided not to, and A and M signing the Dickies was the last anomaly to that. And then they put out well the Ramones they kept, and thus the Rock and Roll High School soundtrack, among other things. Which I guess you had a bit to do with, Joe. At least I had a bit. I had a bit to do with the movie, but nothing with the soundtrack. Uh huh. <laughs> As in, you were the first director or the second one? Or? No, no. I was. I was a pinch hit director when when uh, the director got sick in the last couple of. And I also co-wrote the story. For the movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still haven't seen the movie all the way through. Oh dear God. Um, yeah, but but Jello, I was I was so uh, so psyched when your name came up as uh, uh, someone worth um, that, that we might be able to uh, rope into doing this. Well, thank um, you. Because I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and I know you're a movie guy. You know, it's an honor to be asked into something besides the same old either punk or political shop talk questions, although we may weave in and out of that anyway. Oh, it's inescapable. Example <laughs> A, um, a face in the crowd. Hey! Yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen it in a while, but uh, it's, it's still right up there. <laughs> warning 60 years plus earlier of what can happen when a pop culture figure gets a little too popular. And it's far more accurate in its predictions than John, meet John Doe or Bob Roberts as far as what can happen with yeah. things like this. Especially when not now, uh, you know, a certain. Uh, neo-Nazi white supremacist blowhard who stole an election four plus years ago. He knows a lot about rigging elections. Let's put it that way. You know, he's turning into Andy Griffith's character at the very end of uh, Facing the Crowd very publicly and people are just clinging to him anyway. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, that's the, that's, that's the difference. They, they, in Facing the Crowd, there's a montage of people going, what? He's a monster. You know, like, because <laughs> he obviously is. But now it's sort of like, well, yeah, he's a monster, but he's our monster. Yeah. <laughs> we love him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. And I, I mean, uh, before we move back into film, 
I would hope the Biden crew realizes that hardly any of those 80 million people voted for him. They voted against against Trump. Trump. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just like 08 was pro Obama, but 2012 was anti Romney. Right. He scared the living shit out of people. And, you know, when a uh, patriotic prankster caught him talking about 47% of people are freeloaders, they'll never support us. They think they're entitled to health care. They think they're entitled to food. Remember that <laughs> quote? Yeah. yeah. That and Occupy combined did what the Obamatons were too corporate Democrat to do to save their own asses. It definitely helped. Yeah. And I, I think, um, what, what's astonishing to me is even uh, as vigorous as the enthusiasm to vote against Trump was, it, there was still a period of it was a little close there. And that makes me... Who's going to play him in the Oliver Stone movie? I don't think you can. Unfortunately, think. Jonathan Winters isn't with us. I know. Yeah, exactly. He's, he looks more and more like Jonathan Winters every day. <laughs> nor was nor is Charles Lawton, or if you put a page boy wig on him, he is Meg Whitman. Well, you know, if it was if it was animated, he could be Baby Huey. (laughs) There you go. There you go. I I can't wait for the inevitable comment. There's always somebody who complains they love our show, but it's like, why do they die on here? Why are you so mean to Trump? Why are you so mean to Trump? (laughs) Well, what really first clued me in about how terrifying this could be was he makes his announcement and gets all this presence saying all these horribly racist things about rapists coming in from Mexico and everything else, and then descends down the gold staircase. And then what do you know? The next pre-primary poll has him double any other candidate. Granted, it was at 25% at the time. What really clued me in was I I have these, uh, this little YouTube rant cast series called What Would Jell-O Do? where I uh, got a, uh, and one of those old what would Jesus do shirts in a thrift store and yes. got out some masking tape and put my own name across Jesus. And <laughs> voila, WWJD is born. Kind of keeps me in the spoken word game since I stopped doing spoken word shows for the most part when I relaunched my, I had to get back to rocking and got Guantanamo School of Medicine off the ground and all that good stuff. But um, I did a what would Jello do within days of that, pointing out this guy is a racist. Do you realize what this guy is? And then normally our publicist types don't pull me aside to tell me what's going on on social media because I never look at my own Facebook thing. I never look at Twitter. I never look at any of that. But I said, this time, I think you need to know about this. You're getting all kinds of angry replies here saying things like, what's the matter? Has Jello become a Muslim? Wait a minute, Trump is punk rock. He's a rebel, man. Doesn't Jello understand? He must be getting too old. And I, that was when I realized, oh my God, this guy could win. What's the lyric? He's a rebel, but he'll never, never be any good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that one. It was a Marilyn Manson rebel from the waist down. I liked that. Um, but, but no, so, so I'll try to rein it back into film. Uh, where do you remember the first time you saw Face in the Crowd? I don't uh, actually. Old enough to appreciate it or? Um, it might've been in a theater. It might've been on TV and at which point somebody pointed me to it or had me watch it with them. It might've even been, um, the, uh, occasional actor Bradford Bancroft who was in, uh, oh, there's a really early Tom Hanks movie. 
Um, they're college students, and one of the characters tries to kill themselves, and that's Bradford's character. Anyway, oh, a uh, bachelor party. It's bachelor party. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. And then they cast him as a lead in something called Dangerously Close that didn't get that far. But um, he started coming to my spoken word shows and letting me crash at his place. And he and his wife just like to watch movies every single night. And that might have been one of them. I mean, he showed me video drone that I might not have seen otherwise and effects and and meet John Doe, among others. That's where I saw those. Got it. Yeah, because um, Facing the Crown, of course, comes up a lot here. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been telling Anne Marie, my girlfriend and, uh, you know, wrangler for you and whatnot, that, um, you know, she's seen it, too. But maybe we should watch that again. I'm kind of itching to see that one again. Uh, it's still good. Well, the, 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 the way the way I'd like to approach this, as I told Josh on the phone, is there was a little mini once a week film festival, once at the Pacific at Film Archives on the campus of UC Berkeley that the author Barry Gifford was curating. And it was Barry Gifford's Unforgettable Films. And he said straight out, I don't necessarily mean the greatest or my favorites, I mean unforgettable. Yes. And that is certainly the category that uh, Face in the Crowd is in, although it's a damn good movie too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I like to, uh, that's what I think I want to want to play with here. With yeah, the, I think that's fair. I mean, and, and that's, that's really honest too, because there are those movies that for whatever reason uh, you can't shake. I mean, there are, you know, I look at lists of like the movies that got nominated last year or something. I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess I saw them, but you know, then there are movies that no one's heard of that I can never forget. Well, but there are movies that speak to you. If the movie doesn't speak to you, you can appreciate it as a, good piece of craft but it doesn't it doesn't speak to your heart and and the movies that we carry around with us are the movies that really connect with us and 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 they don't even have to be quote good movies but they're they're just meaningful to us one of my favorite juvenile delinquency flicks is a later color one called hot rods to hell oh yeah and that was the first time i ever saw dana andrews in a movie and did not know he was this film noir icon and much, much more till later. He was just this cartoon of a completely appalled parent where they're in their little family car trip and pull into this little desert town. And it's been taken over by juvenile delinquents who kind of torment them for the rest of the movie. And of course the daughter played by Mimsy farmer. The peerless Mimsy farmer. What's that? (laughs) The peerless Mimsy. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's in Riot on Sunset Strip in a similar role. She falls for the bad kids, and Dana Andrews is beside himself. And then later at one of these Noir City film festivals that Eddie Muller, who does Noir Alley on Turner Classic Movies, hosts in San Francisco. Um, You know, I was already a Noir fan and got pulled much more deeply into it, being able to see him in a giant Art Deco still intact theater with a really knowledgeable host who turned out to be a very friendly guy that were good friends with each other now. But one time he pulled me over and introduced me to a San Francisco resident who just happened to be Dana Andrews' daughter. Hmm. And so being the smart ass that I am, I told her straight up, yeah, I really liked him in Hot Rods to Hell. (laughs) And her reply was, yeah, and he was probably drunk the entire time he was doing that movie. Well, and I he, mean, when you, when, you, when you think about it, he had had good reason. 
<laughs> I mean, his career was kind of, you know, on the skids. That was yeah. actually made for television, that picture. It was oh released to theater. Oh, my kidding. How could I mean, I first heard about it because it was advertised on the rock station I listened to as a young kid when most kids weren't listening to rock yet and stuff. That was how I first heard about it. But um, she said he also, for the last 10, 15 years of his life, he did get sober and pulled his life back together and, you know, had a pretty good senior years and stuff but you say you say his career was on the skids and it may well have been in no small part to drinking no it was entirely because of that i yeah. mean there are there are movies there are certain movies where you can actually in, in uh while the city sleeps supposedly uh, fritz lang said he was drunk in every scene <laughs> however he was such a good actor that it, you you really it, it, very seldom can you tell that he was actually drunk mm. And they never cast him in a as a leaving Las Vegas type alcoholic role either, did they? Well, that's because Jack Lemmon had the corner on that. <laughs> <laughs> if not Ray Milland. Oh my God, have we have we talked about the, the Broderick Crawford story? I heard speaking. Of? Oh, I can hardly wait. I, I think I think I think I may have told this before, and Joe may have confirmed it. I, I knew uh, way way back at the beginning of my career, I met an AD who had either worked on the show or been related to someone who had worked on Highway Patrol. And the story was that sometimes Crawford would come in so hammered that they would put a um, filing cabinet on the floor and then they'd lay him next to it. And then he would sort of rest his arm on it as though he was, and then they'd point the camera down at him and he would just do his lines and they would make it look as though he was standing up. I'm gonna have to watch <laughs> for that because Highway Patrol is on at 5 a.m., six, I guess mornings a week here now, and I'm still up then usually. So every once in a while, I got to get my highway patrol binge. I mean, that yeah, show has grown on me simply because the production value compared to Peter Gunn, which they also show, is just so much less. And there's always traffic driving by and airplane noises that they try to take out when they, oh, no, you can't have action yet. we got to get this plane to go by. They don't bother them. They just shoot the thing. And most of the guest actors and the crooks and the victims are people who probably never got another role. For good reason, although Ed Nelson and Stuart Whitman have turned up, among others. And, uh, of course, at the very end, there's always the wrath and lecture from Broderick Crawford. And the crimes, they're not quite as weird as Hawaii Five-O, the original Hawaii Five-O's crimes. But some of them are really out there. So uh, I've kind of, I like that show. I do too. I remember when I first came to California, one of the, it was kind of a thrill to go down Western Avenue and see the actual building that was used as the front for the Highway Patrol show. It was, it was, the shot was in every show. And it was like, that's where, that's, that's, that's where they did Highway. Wow. You know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to watch for Crawford on the filing cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd love to. If you, if you stumble across one, let me know. And, and I don't think I've ever seen the outside of their building. I mean, that was another thing that struck me about that show is it seemed to be shot mostly on location, except for this cardboard walled office they had for the cops. And well, that was a, a there was a, a company called Ziv which was a very early TV syndication company that oh, yeah. they did science fiction theater. They did a bunch of, bunch of shows that were never, they were never network shows. They were always syndicated Oh, I uh, know and that. they were very popular. I mean, they, they, they lasted a long time. I led three lives, you know, yeah, those shows were run a lot. Three seasons. 
amazingly. Wait, so where where are you, Jello, right now that, that you're getting highway patrol at 5 a.m.? Um, it's some new cable thing called MeTV. No, I watch MeTV. Oh, okay. They've well, got you have to Mason. change the screen or oh, so you get a, cir- an, a too tall circus mirror for everything. <laughs> and then there's a companion one called Decades. It's mostly old comedy shows, but they have Ed Sullivan reruns or compilations oh, wow. and stuff from Ed Sullivan reruns. And every once in a while, somebody like James Brown will turn up right. or even a Japanese garage rock band called the Blue Comets was on one of them. Oh, wow. The reason that show was off for so long was music rights. There were there was such a hassle with music oh, that rights sense, that, yeah. that, that they were not, you know, because the original shows were all on hour. And uh, they've, they've always managed to cobble together enough pieces that they could clear that they could right. actually syndicate a half hour version. Yeah, I've seen The Doors, seen some dynamite James Brown, no pun intended. And But another thing that he obviously did a lot of that you could get the rights to, I suppose, there's a lot of circus performers on there. There's <laughs> jugglers, there's acrobats, there's magicians. Spinning Unkies. plates, that was a special favorite. <laughs> so, yeah, so, some of whom do pretty amazing things. Well, there was a Xavier Cougat Orchestra one once, and they were doing like the salsa side of things. It actually, you know, really rocks with the better side of Ray Barreto and many people now and stuff. And then it focuses on a woman. I'm not sure they even identify her as Charo sitting on a bar stool type thing in the middle of the stage doing a flamenco guitar solo. She was pretty good. As you right? probably know, she's a master flamenco guitarist. Yeah. Yeah. Making me now really curious about that disco album she put out that came and went in a flash, whether she actually plays her guitar on that or not. Because ethnic disco is not so bad, I've decided now. You know, there's a sidelong cover of House of the Rising Sun by somebody called Santa Esmeralda. And again, it's supposed to be gypsy disco. And the the, flama- the the flamenco or gypsy stuff on there makes it a really, really cool version of the song. And so is this uh, Charo and the Salsoul Orchestra, Coochie Coochie? Well, um, that's what she used to say. That was her. Oh, I know. I know. Right. The, is this the disco album? Um, Supposedly, if she's still even performing at her Nevada, Vegas, or Tahoe shows, she does have a flamenco part of the set. Yeah. But which would be oh, no, it, has a 12, it has a 12 inch remix of Coochie Coochie on it. <laughs> wow. Okay. Someday I hope I run into that. I finally, after recoiling in horror when I saw it in the 50 cent bin at Aquarius Records when it first came out, the Ethel Merman disco album mm. that they were playing in the store. That. And sure enough, thump, thump, thump. There's no business like show business. <laughs> I had a real problem with her growing up because she reminded me of the meanest teacher of my element in my elementary school because the first thing I ever saw her in was that horrible bitch and it's a mad, 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 <laughs> mad world. <laughs> Sylvester's mother and stuff. And yeah, later the, 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 the show business thing, the music was on TV and I just couldn't just complain to my parents and stuff. It's her, it's her. It's that woman who looks like Mrs. Nicholson. She's so horrible and stuff. That, uh, but that, you know, that you're talking about favorite films since I digress. It's a mad, yes, mad, but... mad, mad world is my favorite comedy ever made. Really? Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, why not? I mean, first of all, you're never going to put together a cast like that ever right. again. Even then, it was a miracle that all of those people who were all famous from 
vaudeville radio all the way up to you know tv and movies i mean could all be corralled into one movie and and it's almost all ensemble shots i mean there's 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 cutaways to different you know subplots but for the most part they're together all the time and and you know imagining (laughs) with the egos of comedians imagining having to wrangle all those people in these shots which are big widescreen you know establishing shots it must have been amazing what i had read is that when word got around even in you know bel-air and whatnot of people were mostly retired how good that script was all kinds of old actors and comedians came out of the woodwork wanting to be in the movie Mm. so they had to write more and more parts and more and more scenes to get them all in, because that movie's about three hours long, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's an intermission in the middle and everything. And um, and that was part, it was just like Batman villains on the TV show. Yeah. They had yeah. more and more old movie stars and even some younger and up and coming ones. Joan Collins, who was a total unknown, it's a siren, for example. But there were more and more and more of them as the show went on. And that might have partly helped kill the show after only three seasons. I don't know. But um, that's right. Yeah, Shatner wanted to. There, were, there was a brief moment he was going to play Two-Face. And that yeah, but I think, that, I think what killed the show was that every episode was the same. You know, I mean, I remember I'm, I'm old enough to remember the actual premiere of the Batman TV show. And everybody thought it was incredibly great. It, they'd never seen anything quite like it on television. And then the next week, they were disappointed that it was almost the same show with different, you know, characters. And it was like, I, oh, it's going to be like this every week. Joe, you, you know? can write to the Ramones movie. I, as an eight-year-old, was not disappointed at all. Exactly. I think there might have been one or two before my parents, who controlled the TV, said, oh, let's try this. And immediately I was hooked. It was not that long after I first heard rock and roll in the fall of 65 when Beatlemania was still going on, Hullabaloo was on TV, and I got to see the animals and the criminally underrated Paul Revere and the Raiders, and even the Stones were on, Mitch Ryder, Detroit Wheels. And then I was supposed to be asleep, would jump up and down on my bed pretending I was them late at night. But uh, then came, that was the only thing that ever derailed my ambitions as far as what I wanted to be when I grew up. Because this was a year later, maybe. This was third grade, where you were supposed to tell the class or write a thing what they wanted to do when you grew up. All, the dudes were all, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be the Riddler. I want to mm-hmm. be the Penguin. Those are my heroes. Those mm-hmm. are my role models. <laughs> I'm 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 so I should have been wearing my uh, my Underworld United T-shirt that I have from the movie. Um, <laughs> were Were you old enough at that point uh, to when you first saw Batman? Did you get that it was comedy, or were you just because one of the things I loved? I guess I was younger and I caught it in reruns, but you know, to me, it was like the most amazing comic book thing ever. It was it come to life, and there's Batman fighting crime, and there's Robin at his side. It was like, and then years and years later, I watched it again as an adult, and I realized, oh my god, this is one of the funniest shows ever made. But it worked for me. As I a- think I got the comedy, but yeah. my main, the main thing I liked was the villains. Right. I mean, I had a brief period later of watching superhero cartoons on Saturday morning, yep. only for the villains. Again, they were my heroes. They were my role models and stuff. 
Galactus, Salamandro on D Johnny Quest. Never really got interested in Superman. And part of the failure of that whole franchise compared to the Batman movies is that there was only one villain and he wasn't that <laughs> weird or diabolical. He's just bald. I mean, quickly, the, 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 the cartoon favorite was Spider-Man, almost straight mm. out of the gate. Spider-Man himself just saying, wouldn't it be cool to like go go around the, the city that way, flying from cloud to cloud on your web and, and spinning your web. And then they too had great villains, uh, Green Goblin and the yeah. Kingpin. Mysterio. And, and, oh yeah, Mysterio. I think there's only one Mysterio at that point. I can't remember some of the others. But anyway, the other cool thing about Spider-Man, that TV show was the music was really good on it too. Yeah. You know, in incidental, a little surf thing that I later saw used on some skiing thing on Wide World of Sports and other stuff. So I realized there was Renta music out there, and the Spider Man <laughs> one was, was really, really good. Yeah. Imagine my delight when I found out somebody many years ago bootlegged the theme song on a 45. <laughs> Perfect for my DJ sets and stuff. Ah. And, of course, uh, Joe's, Joe's buddy, the Ramones. Uh, did a, I would love to say, if only Fetus could cover that theme. I mean, the Ramones <laughs> did it very well when they did it. But you you know enough about Jim Thurlwell, who goes by scraping Fetus off the wheel. You've got Fetus on your breath, whatever, F-O-E-T-U-S, to know what a master he is of horns and electronic horns and, uh, you know, movie music swing music but making it into this high-powered rock stuff and things you know there's you know there's no equal in some areas and yes he can chart things and conduct people and all that good stuff and a studio wizard on an al jorgensen scale and everything so um i'd love to have him do that that particular spider-man thing with horns oh yeah yes oh yeah because <laughs> there are horns on the original yeah, 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 yeah. If I did it, I I loop those a little bit of thing. Boop, 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 and have um, they done it in any of the others? And I have not seen a ton of them, but it was one of my favorite things in the Sam Raimi uh, feature film. Is didn't they? They have like a street performer playing the original theme to Spider Man as Peter Parker walks by. Because <laughs> you can't do Spider Man. That's the first that. Tommy Toby Maguire one, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that I like that. I, I haven't seen the later actors, and each of the Toby Maguire ones got, got went way further downhill than the one before as they got obsessed with whether or not he was going to make up with his girlfriend. Peter Parker was going to make up with his girlfriend. I was like, we want more villains. Yes. Where's the kingpin? <laughs> Where Where's are these the others and stuff? <laughs> yeah. So uh, that, that one didn't last with me. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, the cartoon was incredible. And it's so weird to go back to it and look at it and realize how rudimentary it was. Because as a child, I was convinced it was just, state-of-the-art animation when you're five years old yeah i never saw the batman cartoon i've never seen any of them well those batman cartoons weren't weren't that great but the spider maybe i was just miffed that they never hired me for one of the voices when they brought it back <laughs> and everything ah, yeah 
I mean, I was born to do cartoon voices. I can imitate all kinds of things. And uh, I am a cartoon. So uh, I was told by people in that area of the business line, look, you got to live in L.A. And you got to have this kind of an agent. You got to go to all the cattle calls and this, that and the other. And I'm like, you know, if you want me as Jello Biafra, you go for that. And, you know, no cattle calls. Not anymore. Not anymore. And you were often... I mean, they, they, they were, they were, they, they liked what I did in tape heads, which was very small. And then some other ones later, which were more substantial. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, you, you were aware that, that, um, you know, over time, as I grew older, I grew less and less into horror and more and more into film noir in part because there was a repertory theater called The Strand. I'd been walking home for, you know, before I hit the BART station and the, on the way back from my brief stint at acting school in San Francisco, I was starting a band by night and whatnot, which eventually took over. But anyway, um, and you never knew what you were going to get every day. So I'd often just, you know, one of the other people at school worked the booth. So she just let me in all the time. And that was where I blundered into the killing, the amazing Stanley Kubrick noir and um well there was a Russ Meyer afternoon one time Serpent's Egg was there that's how that line got in the California Uber Alice song other noirs too and then there was a repertory theater later with my now long gone ex-wife who was really really into thin man type stuff but mm. um the Santo Cedar which was in Cedar Alley and appears to be completely empty and unused now and they had a lot of those going on, including a little more of a 30s focus sometimes. And there's one movie, I bring it up, as unforgettable in part because I have never seen it listed anywhere ever again. And Eddie Muller had never heard of it when I brought it up to him. Plus, it was 30s. Meet Nero Wolf. Oh, and yeah. I think there's based Nero, on the, Wolf, Nero it, Wolf books. They tried based to make on the it books, a, yeah. They tried to make it into a TV show later. And they were obviously trying to launch a franchise, but it only lasted one movie. But it's, you know, that fast 30s pacing. And Edward Arnold is Nero Wolf, a master detective who never leaves his house and just solves a crime by tormenting and annoying different people he suspects of different things till one by one they come in and argue with him as he laughs and drinks more beer and stuff. And eventually he solves the crime. It's by far the merriest role I've ever seen Edward Arnold in, as well as the first. <laughs> and um, he wasn't one noir heavy after another, one grumpy father and other dramas after another. But God, I hope that film gets found again somewhere. A print existed in 1980. I know it. Or 81 because I saw the thing. He used to do, he used to like to play weird odd heroes it, it, there was a, a two movies where he played a blind detective oh right i know uh, the hidden movie. eye and something eyes else in eyes night, in the night maybe? yes yeah. eyes in the night yeah, i think that's and the, the whole and the whole concept of a, a blind detective in a movie is <laughs> you know it works better on radio <laughs> but there was but a the, tv show like that very briefly uh, uh, Fran with james franciscus long street yeah well, i was gonna say long street yeah yeah but i never never was that brief that i feel like they're all around the same time i was a little kid there was a blind detective there was a detective in a wheelchair oh that that, there... that was a that was a police chief and don't forget Zatoichi. what's that <laughs> Zatoichi. yeah yeah, yeah. But, i don't uh, i never heard of that one Zatoichi is a series of samurai movies a blind samurai yeah. Oh, always good. Go. Always good to be blind when you're a samurai because you just Amazing. strike out wildly. Yeah, ask any House <laughs> Republican, right? 
But oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Those, those films are great. Wow, have so, you seen Meet Nero Wolf Joe? Or? Uh, probably a long time ago. It used to be on TV. Yeah. Uh huh. That's so. One is hiding somewhere. Somewhere. We want to pause for just a minute to thank our sponsor, MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website. They're actually huge fans of our show, which we love because we love all of our listeners. And they feature pretty much every one of the movies we talk about here, except for the incredibly obscure ones that have never been released on video. So you can find them and add them to your collection. Sure, you can stream a lot of stuff these days, but when you buy your favorites, you watch what you want, when you want, and there's a ton of great content and bonus features like director's commentaries, deleted scenes, and all sorts of goodies that you don't get elsewhere. They're great. In fact, they're um, uh, when I was growing up in Philadelphia, we would get the Movies Unlimited uh, catalog because they're from Philly and they're still putting it out. It's this big, giant phone book-sized thing that has like every movie that's out on video. It's fantastic. So buy your favorites at MoviesUnlimited.com. You're going to find classics, imports, hard-to-find films, and, of course, tons of new releases. Seriously, they do imports. They do stuff with other regions. They're, they're great. It's a great resource. The prices are fantastic. The choices are endless. Own all the titles you love and enjoy all the bonus features that you just don't get elsewhere. So if you want to own your own experience, click the Movies Unlimited banner on, your, on our website and buy your favorites from hard-to-find films, imports, and more. Go now to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website, where shipping is always free on orders over $50. So feel free to spend lots of money. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There's another cable channel now that kind of rotates around, but they have one or two like 18-hour chunks of film noir movies. No interruption no commercial interruptions like the one that's just called movies has and they are really good digitized restorations for the most part and i can't it's just abbreviated spx at least in my mind mm. it's channel 520 up here they're showing a bunch of them that is I that a, is that a streaming channel no no it's a regular cable channel huh. i'm not high up on the evolutionary scale to have streaming well, plus I also at some point I'm like, oh, I could get this, I could get this, I could get that, I could get that, I could listen to all this stuff on Bandcap, but I don't have time. Uh, I wouldn't even have time if I stopped do trying to get things done in my own world. There still wouldn't be time. No, and if you want to, if you want to get any kind of service, you have to take things you don't want, and that's right, what that, right. that's where that's what it really ends up. Like it was 20, 27 sports channels just to right. turn her classic movie. Yeah, that happened to me, too. My Anne-Marie refused. She just let Turner go, and I think my mother did, too. 
But, you know, they think, oh, yeah, but you get that and you get the Big Ten Network and you get all these other NBA channels. I don't even <laughs> like basketball. I hated having to play it too much. And, and don't forget the shopping channels that you really need. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I've ever bought anything on online off of a TV ad ever. I'm both paranoid of shopping online and completely unskilled at it, too except for PayPal for my share of our band's practice rental room. But I mean, my worry is if I get a PayPal account and start looking at Discogs, which is where all kinds of vinyl things and CDs can be found. Do not go there, my friend. And, you know, I, 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 I don't, I don't have the addiction gene on either side of my family, thankfully. So no Dana Andrews here, vastly (laughs) worse to some other people we all miss, but, um, I do have one addiction, and from the moment my parents finally let me have a record player, Pandora's box was open, and I could never get enough records. And so the problem with Discogs is, if I actually could go crazy on Discogs, I would not only blow my life savings, but I would piss away so much time. And then I'd have bands saying, yeah, where's the new song you were supposed to show us today? Oh, but I got this really, really rare single that's really cool. It's to show they arrive and not be smashed or great, a lot more scratchy than they said it was and stuff like that. So uh, it's danger. Yes. Total yeah. well, it's, danger. Well, it's good as uh, if I can quote Clint Eastwood. Well, I don't know. It sounds like a Milius line to me. A uh, man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> Whatever happened to that guy? Milius? John Milius. He's uh he's still around. I know he's had some health issues lately. Is that right, Joe? And he's um yeah. I mean, well, well he had some mental health issues for a hell of a long time, it seems like long before we had Steve Bannon and we had Lauren Bobert with all her guns and everything else, there was John Millius. You know, when something... Red Dawn was made. I think he likes he likes to see himself more as a Hemingway type person. Well, yeah. at the time of Red Dawn. I also had something charming about him that even just... Red Dawn. He described himself as a Zen fascist. Yes. There he was directing Red Dawn with military fatigues on. And whether he was ever actually in the military, I'm assuming he probably, like Rush no. Limbaugh and Dick Cheney and George W. Bush, he wasn't. But, no, he um, apparently regretted that he couldn't go to Vietnam. And I remember years ago, I used to do crew. I sure didn't. I, worked, um, I was working on a movie called Warlock. We were working at the old Lionsgate Studios. And apparently my office used to be Milius's. I wish I'd kept these. I knew these were kind of collector's items at the time. I just didn't. And apparently, uh, and I was still getting his subscription to Soldier of Fortune was still coming to my office. Oh, lovely. And I used to have a couple of issues of Soldier of Fortune with John Milius' subscription tag on them. And oh, cool. Well, if you don't want them, send them I don't know what me. happened to them. I'm so sad. <laughs> One of my high school friends I was in plays with and stuff worked for Soldier of Fortune oh, for years as the, the one liberal in the office. It was just a regular, <laughs> some kind of a management or financial job because Robert K. Brown, the founder, editor, located the headquarters of Soldier of Fortune on a second floor on a major downtown street that's now the Pearl Street Mall, right across from where the Boulder Cam- Daily Camera used to be printed and had their offices, the Daily Paper, just had it up there, said, yeah, nobody notices us here. We're not going to be given a bunch of problems when we're surrounded by all these navel-gazing granola munchers, you know, my <laughs> phrase, but uh, that was kind of what he meant. <laughs> that's awesome. 
Um, they may still be there and he may still be there. I'm assuming they're still there. Are they? Like, I mean, for all I know, Bill McCartney, the winningest football coach the University of Colorado Buffaloes ever had, who then went on to found a really dangerous Christian supremacist and male supremacist organization called the Promise Keepers. Oh, um, yes. he may still be in Boulder, too, even though he's about the last person who belongs there and stuff. At least go to Colorado Springs, dude. I mean, he surfaced when the Broncos drafted Tim Tebow, who was, as my uncle would say, obnoxiously religion, religious to a T. And then McCartney said, oh, yeah, we can do a lot of business together. <laughs> I mean, McCartney was one of the major forces behind that anti-gay amendment Colorado mm -hmm. passed early on. That was him. Wow. Somehow we're onto football now. This is terrible. Well, we can this we can terrible. get back. It's an eclectic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if there's one place I feel safe from sports, it's here. God damn it. And yeah, but didn't even the here. Joker draw Batman into a football game at one point? I don't know. He oh, drew sure. him into a surfing contest. I remember surfing, that yes. one. Yes, absolutely. That's part of that was they had a little surfing stroke going when the Joker was in the ocean. It was pretty good and then an even better one a little bit of a harmony to that one but it was my tune popped into my head and i realized oh this is a live one okay pause the thing and get out the walkman play with it a little while and it eventually finally emerged on my band jellabia from the Guantanamo school of medicine's new current album tea party revenge porn in this case it's called no more selfies it wound up being and it's uh Heart surf and then heavy guitar comes in at times, a little surprise and goes back out again. I mean, why just do traditional surf style, the whole damn song or heavy shit? Like a lot of my other songs, the whole song where you can mix and match and startle the shit out of people, an old tactic of mine. But, and it's not on the vinyl because there wasn't room. So there's a seven inch about to come out of that song. And the ghost of Vince Lombardi is on the other side about the problem with being dr drilled into everybody as it was in me as a teenager. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing, you know, and that, that, you know, imagine if Trump didn't believe that and actually could be happy at some point and satisfied with the amount of stuff he had, <laughs> you know, it goes straight into all this greed that goes on where, you know, the, all these people, they just have to have more and more and more and more money. I made another trillion because of COVID while everybody died. I win and they lose. You know, everybody, they have to win. Therefore, somebody has to lose. Right. I mean, you got one, you got your first million. You're good. But by that time, I won the game. Now I must have more. I got to win more and more and more and more and more. Well, here's what and, I got to uh, wonder. And again, this is also. Far field, but but at a certain point, what how old is Trump? He's like 70, 74. 74. If there's one thing I know for sure about that man, is he's never been happy for a single solitary moment in his life. Oh, he doesn't life. deserve to be. No, no, no. Point. But imagine, you know, don't you ever just have one moment of like, uh, I've done all, I've been, pre I've done this, I've done that, and I'm still not happy. Maybe, just maybe these pursuits are not what I should be wasting my time on. Well, maybe. Maybe if he actually got as far as ejaculating when he was grabbing somebody by the pussy <laughs> and it felt good or it better feel good, even for you, Donald. And then, uh, you know, and of course for him, he, it meant he conquered her too. Right. Yeah. I mean, he must no conquer. He must anywhere. win. It's all about winning. You know, yeah. the scariest thing was what if he felt he was losing to Kim Jong-il and decided to nuke him? Listen, we are so lucky. 
that we got through those four years without some kind of holocaust. Oh, I know. I mean, I mean, he's, also... he is he's every time the dead zone is on, and I see the scene with Greg Stilson, you know, the presidential candidate who's who who Christopher Walken has the vision about what he's going to do when he gets to be president and he's going to blow up the world because he thinks he's God is telling him to do it. Uh, it's, it's, he's so Trump-like. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that it must be a source of pride to Martin Sheen that every time he thinks about playing that part, he thinks about how he was channeling a guy who he did, probably didn't even know existed. Yeah, except if he was <laughs> channeling Nixon. And Nixon no, Trump may is not worse than Nixon been of most the most religious guy in the world and you got to file him under the category of the one of the great screen monsters yeah you yeah. totally do yeah. but um in terms of how he tormented us in our youth until january 6th i still insisted he was more divisive than trump because he sent people off to die in wars and there was the same kind of police violence and COINTELPRO and everything else. But after January 6th, Trump finally, finally he Exceeded beat Nixon. Nixon. He wins now. He laid the table for Trump. Was it Ehrlichman or Kissinger who claimed in a memoir that they went into the Oval Office one night and found Nixon drunk out of his mind That's having his extended meltdown over Watergate yeah. and he wanted to start a nuclear war just for the hell of it. Yeah, that was Kissinger. And he had to, that was Kissinger, and he had to stop him and stuff. Imagine, Maybe was, imagine when the future of human existence depends on Henry Kissinger doing the right thing. Oh, God, yeah, <laughs> tell me about it. My God. <laughs> Funny, yeah, that, not, not even Milius made a hero figure, big blockbuster drama about Henry Kissinger. You know, Secret Honor, which is uh, the, oh, uh, the, the... The Nixon, Altman. The Robert Altman uh, Nixon movie with uh, Philip, Philip Bosco. Uh, no, Phil, Phil Poppin, or, uh, oh God, Jesus Christ! The other, the other, the other one that I always get mixed up with Philip Bosco. Yeah, um, and um, uh, Philip Baker Hall. Philip great, Baker Hall. Philip Baker Hall. Who, who is name. who is great in the movie? And he's ta he's talking. He's totally loaded. It's a monologue. It's a monologue. He's talking to pictures of old presidents and stuff. And uh, when I when I first started to see the movie, I thought. This is really a cheap shot. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't really buy into this. But by the time the movie was over, it was so compelling and so believable in its portrayal of this guy and all of his insane, you know, uh, influences, and uh, that that it's and it's it's the movie's vanished. I mean, nobody knows it exists. Yeah. It was, What's uh, the name of it again? Secret Honor. Secret honor. It was there was that period of time where Altman was sort of uh, uh, in the wilderness. He was before the player, before that. Well, he was him. doing come back to the five and dime Billy Jean stuff. You know, it was sort of like, what's he doing? Why is he doing this? You know, secret honor. I mean, there there were whispered worries that Reagan might do something like that. You know, well, but then he, he wouldn't remember that he did it. Well, he was an end times guy, though, apparently. I mean, supposedly when the dictator of El Salvador, not Dabasson, but the earlier one, Jose Napoleon Duarte, came up for a big powwow at the White House, they just sat out back on the lawn and talked about the end of the world, and then Duarte went home. And so there was some worry about that, and then a bigger one with George W. Bush, of course who uh, was saved by, saved by the same preacher who earlier was the main preacher on Sunset Strip. 
during the swing in the 60s. What was that guy's name? He put out an album, too. I oh, think he was the same guy who had the cross with the wheel he'd take around on the beach, too. I think he was that there guy. Mike Curb? Can so then there was that. Yeah, Mike Curb was the head of MGM Records. No, I know, but wasn't there a Mike Curb? <laughs> oh, I thought there was a Mike Curb. But no, the guy's Secret album was put Prime. out independently. Yeah. But, no, Sacred, um, Sacred Honor is on Prime. Secret Honor is on Prime in HD. Uh, it's, it's definitely worth, worth and then. There was no, wait, can time... I just say, there is somebody listening who's had his papa. It's Jello Biafra. If you're listening to this show and you're offended by his politics, why the fuck are you listening to this? How do you, <laughs> who is coming to this show? Yeah, especially with all this talk that comes at me from what was the other side about trigger warnings. And you got to make sure you don't, you know, really offend or freak people out and stuff, which people like Chris Rock cite for no, no more college gigs for him or even the smaller comedians we don't know who depend on lunch hour gigs touring the country doing that. And suddenly you got to submit everything in advance. And it's not just to the religious right. It's to the more radical than thou on the other side. And I don't know how I'm going to phrase it yet to not step in it, but I want to at some point do a song about this and just point out, look, I, <laughs> I am one big, massive set of microaggressions, and I am a punk rocker, and my purpose is to strike raw nerves and shake up your brain and get you to fucking think, and if you don't like it, too bad! Please don't annoy me, Jello. I mean, I realize some people who were assaulted, assaulted as children and other things, I mean, that's a good point. I get that. but. Um, there has to be a way to keep blunt punk rock communication, radical communication, and cruel humor and sick humor alive. Yep, yep, absolutely, 100% agree. Um, uh, ba ba we're kind of getting to another area of unforgettable films. Um, awesome. The first one I saw at the Pacific Film Archive was one I knew nothing about. It kind of smelled like those black and white detective ones. I didn't know that they were all called film noir yet or anything. And it was called, uh, the, it, at, that, at that particular showing, it was called Sin City USA. I guess oh. it's better known as the Phoenix City, Phoenix City story. story. Yeah. Yeah. Phoenix yeah. with no O in it, which is across the river from Columbus, Georgia, yep. and had a horrible reputation as a completely out of control, gangster-run town where anything went, and all the military people from the bases around Columbus on the other side would all just do whatever there. And, and it was supposedly a true story and everything, complete with a heavy-duty racial murder of a child yep. in the movie. You know, it was, it was as, as Gifford said, yeah, this is an unforgettable film. Yeah, and it's, then, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brutal picture, and it's, uh, it, it's very hard-hitting, and it's hard to... It was made for Allied Artists, which was not a, a major company, but uh, it, it's kind of hard to realize that they got away with as much as they did in that picture. And I, I guess it was the sense of righteousness, because, you know, there's a prologue, and, and there's, a, there's a, some city people talking at the beginning, telling you it was all true and everything. Uh, and, and it's, it's fairly scrupulous to the facts, actually. It's a, it's an, there's an epilogue at the end. And I don't know whether it's a fed or whether it's something else, because essentially the hero figure, who I think is another federal agent who's supposed to uncover this, and then they crush them all and they all go off to jail at the end. He loses. 
I can't remember if he dies at the end and the mob wins, but the mob wins in the movie. And then the epilogue is, yes, this still goes on. And if America can get the courage to put a stop to this, we must, blah, blah, blah. But the mob wins, which is, you know, that's like Susan Hayward getting executed and I want to live. If you see the movie not knowing that's going to happen, which I did, you know, it's a very powerful anti-death penalty film even though you read up on it later and there's all this, these people insisting, no, no, that woman was guilty as hell. But uh, you never know. I mean, people insisted the West Memphis Three were guilty as hell as well until all the DNA cleared them. And then they still wouldn't let them out of jail for three more years. You know, they were, they were put away in Arkansas, West Memphis, Arkansas, for two brutal slangs of of two eight-year-old kids who were even skinned and stuff by somebody who knew their taxidermy and they blamed these guys in town who wore black and listened to heavy metal and um so and, and there's been several documentaries about them i don't think of yeah, peter jackson did one there's a trilogy of them yeah peter jackson made one and there's a trilogy from yeah yeah and then they still partly because the da and the judge didn't want to admit they're wrong just like yeah. thin blue line People, I mean, Damon Eccles came within a hair of being executed for a crime he didn't commit because he was the only one they put on death row because he was the most black clothing, which they let him wear at the trial. What a dumb defense attorney to start questioning him on the stand about Wicca and stuff. That was just not not a smart defense. My God. But, uh, you know, and Governor Huckabee was all too happy with this whole right to life crusade to sign a death warrant to kill Damien Eccles. So I think it was Huckabee who did that, unless it was prior. I don't remember. But anyway. But, but um, Phoenix City, I, I saw uh, Sidney Poitier talk years ago. It was amazing. I mean, he was, he was, um, uh, was at least 10 years ago. And he talked about, uh, uh, and I get this, and he wasn't, he wasn't dissing the film, and I don't think he had seen it. But at the time, he was struggling to break in as an actor and he was uh, uh he had a wife i think he may have had a kid they were living in one bedroom apartment and he was washing dishes for a living and he got offered the part of the father uh or the guy whose whose daughter is murdered in the film and he had made a promise to his father that he wouldn't play anything that showed him or his people in a weak or negative light and um and i understand why you would see it that way you know and I've I've always and I believed him, and I've heard this story enough from other people. The the wherewithal to be washing dishes for a living with a wife and kid back home, struggling to make ends meet, trying to break into movies, and to still be able to turn down a part in a movie because you felt it sent the wrong, you know, message about yourself and 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 the people you represent. Well, yeah, but you know that was that was he'd already been in a number of movies by the time that picture was made. Notably, oh, okay. notably No Way Out. She's got the second lead. Yeah, with yeah. Uh, I was about to bring that up, but come to think of it, no, he was not portraying his people in a negative light at all. No, and, and, the, and the guy um, who plays it, James Edwards, who is the guy who would have been Sidney Poitier had he been right. better looking, I guess, at the time, or sexier or whatever, and was one yeah. of the best actors of, of his generation uh, uh, of, and, 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 and had a long career. He's in Patton. He's in Manchurian Candidate. I mean, he's in, he's in a lot of really good movies because he was a really good actor. Yeah. Uh, but he uh, he never had the career that he should have had because he really was a, a, as good an actor as any 
like I, there, I, mean, I, I, a, didn't, I didn't agree with Poitier's take on it. Like I said, I don't think you ever saw the film. I, I was impressed that he was, you know, that, that he would pass on a part for something like that at that point in his career. But then where would he put his role in um, Odds Against Tomorrow? Is that the, that's the one with, uh, um, is it Cassavetti? Well, that was even later. No, that's with Robert that's Ryan. That's with Robert Ryan oh, and yeah, Ed yeah, Begley, yeah. and they all yeah. get together to rob a bank and none of them survive. And that's because there's a lot of racial tension. And I was right. just thinking in, a, in our, in our era of uh, anti-Asian complaints that you could, you could do a remake of odds against tomorrow, except instead of making it a black uh, person that they're prejudiced against, it could be an Asian person. Mm. And it's a good story. Yeah. I mean, it's a good movie. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm the, 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 the closest we can come is um he drives a sports car and a nice one the character in odds against tomorrow belafonte's character even though he's a small time jazz vibes player somehow he had to have that and he um you know he got in financial trouble including with the mob so he foolishly agrees to do this so at the very least it's portraying a human being as being foolish and in over his head. You know, that's, and that's not Poitiers Barrel Belafonte, excuse me, but um, yeah, point be made. And, um, but meanwhile, there is another lesser known, really racially charged film noir that is barely ever seen anywhere. And Eddie Muller got a hold of it to show at the last noir city called The Well. Ever heard of? Oh yeah, the, I used to. The well used to be on TV all the time. Oh really? Yeah. Really? Okay. It's a because... very independent movie. Had very, very. Uh, I don't think it had a lot of theatrical distribution. Yeah. Uh, but it's based on a real incident. Yeah, in, in a kind of half-half segregated little town, a little black girl falls down an unmarked, no longer used well, and if I recall, nobody knows this has happened, and they wonder where she is. And slowly but surely, the other thing that makes this movie so relative to now is mouth after mouth, it goes around about something else happened, something else happened, and then, you know, white people are coming and massing together, and they've got two by fours and stuff like that, and then the black people are massing the same, all based on bullshit that got more and more blown up as somebody told the rumor to somebody else. I thought, my God, this is a movie for right now more than just about any of these, except maybe facing the crowd. And um, and I asked Eddie, well, why haven't you shown this on Noir Alley, especially now? And he said, there's a lot of these movies where I can eventually get the rights to show it in a theater. Mm-hmm. But I, it's a whole separate process, clearing the right with these people to show it on television. Mm-hmm. And so there's all kinds of ones like Violent Saturday, which is a Technicolor yeah. noir about yeah. you know a, a robbery gone wrong shot on location in Bisbee, Arizona, and stuff. It's just amazing. Yeah. It's fantastic film. Even a little bit of a slightly comic overtone of how the robbers are eventually foiled by a farmer played by a young unknown Ernest Borgnine, among other things. You know, you don't usually associate him with that genre, but yeah. um, what a great movie. And it never turns up anywhere. Oh, no, I and think there's the, somebody, uh, God damn it, because I've got a Blu-ray of it. Somebody, um, 
one of those companies that went out of business. Like or, Twilight Time or something. Twilight Time, companies. I think, did a Blu-ray yeah. of it. Yeah, so it's sort of limited. Oh, growl. And now that those five, now that, and that was a that was a Fox picture, and now that they're owned by Disney, who has decided basically to bury the entire. Oh, so Disney will be running it on their streaming service soon. Is that what well? No, they, that's the point. They won't. They won't know. Know. Oh you know. my god. Uh, I'm having a hard. I'm looking up the well. Sounds fantastic. I find it on Amazon. I can get a out of print DVD for seventy five dollars. I will live on your memories of it. No, no, no. It'll 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 come back. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a good picture, and I'm sure that Eddie will figure out a way to put it on. Maybe what they should do, somebody else, who you know that doesn't care if they got wiped out and get the thing canned before it gets out on the internet, makes a biopic of Walt Disney. Only it's an, in the fine tradition, it's an animated biopic of Walt Disney and a protagonist somewhere or a narrator, probably not Disney himself, would be played by that long suppressed cartoon character, Mickey Rat. <laughs> Remember Mickey Rat? <laughs> the, the, the underground cartoon. Uh, yeah. Bill, Bill Stout yeah. did that, I think, right? I mean, that was the first I ever heard of Disney just suing and squashing something was suddenly Mickey well, there, Rat. There was, the, there was the Disneyland orgy that was drawn for the realist. Uh, you know, the Paul Krasner's magazine. You didn't know about that. Oh, yeah. Well, you used to be able to go into head shops and find, a, 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 you know, big poster-sized copies of it. And it's all these oh, Disney wow. characters fornicating yeah. uh, and drawn in a very Wally Wood kind of style. Um, and that was, that, was, that was very big. And, and the Disney people were not pleased. Oh, no, I suspect not. <laughs> Am I no. wrong? I believe I mean, Bill, I, Bill Stout, who has been on our show, the artist, uh, created Mickey Rat back in the back underground cartoonist at the time well he obviously lived to draw another day hopefully oh yeah hopefully big things are going good for him he's a huge <laughs> production designer now so yeah well, they can't there be going go. too good for him he was on our show that's right <laughs> <laughs> he's got nothing going on joe jello's on our show yeah <laughs> well groucho marks i wouldn't join any club that would have me as a member and i joined exactly. yours anyway <laughs> <laughs> and we're glad to have you thank you and then another an, another one in the unforgettable category. We're getting back to noir again here early on, although it's kind of borderline that or some other things. Shock Corridor. Oh, a classic. Joe, have you I ever mean, seen Shock Corridor? I love it. One of my favorite really, movies. You've, I didn't know if you'd heard of it or not. What? Yeah, that, oh, how could you not? I, I mean, used to judge my around. friends. I used to I mean, take my Joe, friends. Joe to, judges people by Shock Corridor. I used to take my friends to see Shock Corridor. If they didn't like it, I dropped them. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yes, I'm also going to bring it up to parlay it into something else. And that is there's a little known film that's even more apropos for what happened with Trump than face in the crowd, but hardly anybody's ever seen it, called Terminal City Ricochet. Oh, I'm about to edit this. And, and edit this. the Trump figure, although he plays, the way he plays the guy, because it's Peter Breck, the lead in Shock Corridor, who also won an Emmy for Nick Barkley in the Big Valley and stuff, and he still had all his Reagan hair and everything, um, he plays Ross Glimmer, the dictator of Terminal City, which is one of the last livable places left on Earth. It's kind of like Blade Runner gone horribly wrong and on a much lower budget. He's trying, but he still has to try and get himself reelected. And so when he's campaigning and stuff and vote for me, me, me. OK, he's not a dead ringer for Trump. 
but he is a dead ringer for Rick Perry. Mm, that's true. He really, really is. And like Trump, he became mayor slash dictator because he had a popular TV talk show and he owned the hockey team. And this was shot in Vancouver. It's a Canadian film. And Vancouver's original name was Terminal City. And Okay, now I'll now I, I don't like ask. me bringing Jello, this up, but Jello, I'm, gonna... I'm wondering where were you the first time you saw Terminal Situation? <laughs> well, I was just getting to that because um, you're not supposed to do that on this show. But again, like tape heads, <laughs> I stand by this movie. It gets every national American election gets more like Terminal City Ricochet than the so-called election before it. Cartoonish, tabloidish, everything. And yes, I was cast as Ross Glimmer's right-hand guy. I was his Steve Bannon, his Carl Rove, his Oliver North, G. Gordon Liddy, rolled into one. And um, it was it was intimidating because I only have so much acting experience. Yeah, I was trained method style as a teenager by really demanding directors that put us up against the whole town. And I did play Scrooge once. I'd love to do that again. Boris Karloff role and Arsenic and Old Lace and many, many other fun things. A land developer called Jerry Mander in a local student-created production, but blah de blah Anyway, so I had to try and bring all of that back for this character called Bruce Cottle. And at the same time, most of the scenes I was in were with this master actor, Peter Breck, who knew right where to put his eyes, depending on the light and everything, as well as playing, I think he, looking back and looking at the movie, he was having the time of his life playing this guy. An interview with him that was lost, unfortunately, he, people were asking, well, wh where did you get this guy from? And the first thing out of his mouth was Joe McCarthy, knowing well that a lot of the people who might see that didn't know who Joe McCarthy was, and it was about time they did, and all. But he also, he would occasionally reminisce as actors do and one of his stories was about being in shock corridor and he said and i think it was because of the subject of sam fuller and how heavy duty the guy was in all aspects of his life to the point where before the big red one he couldn't get work for years because people were scared of him or whatever but anyway um there is the scene in shock corridor where Peter Breck's character, the crusading, muckraking news reporter who fakes insanity to get committed to a mental hospital to expose a murder that happened in there. And the hospital people have caught on to him by then. But then he's trying to get out of the hospital, and there's all these doors in a hallway, and he's trying to get one of those doors is the exit. He's trying to get the hell out of there. And he can't find which door it is as he slowly has a nervous breakdown as a result. He said Fuller had kept him up for six days straight to get the kind of performance he wanted for that scene. And then just said, don't worry about it. Just try all the doors until one opens and go out. And he locked all the doors. And so Breck said he was cracking up for real because he thought he was blowing the scene and couldn't find the right door and finally cut and then said um, that film drained him so bad he couldn't work for six months afterwards. He just had to recover from shooting Shock Corridor. 
how I never had the sense of Fuller as that kind of, he always seemed to me to be one of those like, shut up and pretend guys. Well, he all, he also had edgy subjects and had, yeah. you know, you know, and if there was something you could make into that, yeah. you know, crimson kimono or the one where the person with a sh- woman with a shaved head opens yeah, the scene kiss. and whatnot, yeah. um, naked kiss. Yeah. Is very much that kind of a thing. And, um, but the other challenge I had with that movie was that the person who brought me in, the producer, John Conti, had come out of University of British Columbia, where he put Dead Kennedys on at UBC. So he knew me from that and my spoken word shows. And I had a segment in the spoken word show called Why I'm Glad the Space Shuttle Blew Up, pointing out that the next one, had that one not blown up, would have had 40 pounds of plutonium on it, 46 actually. If that one had blown up, none of us would be here now. None of us as the most toxic substance on earth, whereas one speck will kill you, got all over the world's atmosphere. So I thought people should know about that. And the people writing Terminal City Ricochet took note of that. And so one of the things Ross Glimmer has is he has a suburb in space he's trying to get people to buy into and sell to him, but pieces of it are falling to the ground all through the movie. And um, including some cow shit from cattle they're keeping up there because it's illegal to eat meat on earth because of politically correct people and stuff lands on Ross Glimmer in the middle of one of his speeches, which is a, a wonderful scene. I mean, it's, it's black humor. It's got really good points and somehow survives the surrealness issue of having Five different screenwriters and a director hired by Cineplex Odeon, Zale Dallin, who did strip, skip, skip Tracer and whatnot, who had a reputation for bring, bringing in projects on time and on budget. And they put him in there, all six of them arguing over what the script should be and wanting their pet scenes in there. So some of what goes in and out is not explained. But overall, last time I showed it somewhere, and it was like, this is more solid than I remembered it the last time. And it is so much about Trump America. I can't stand it anymore. But trying to get my character together, and also they wanted me, I was trying to wangle the soundtrack rights for my label, Alternative Tentacles, and they wanted me to come up with songs for the movie all at the same time. And the good side is that um, one song apiece, Me With DOA, you know, great, great punk band of this day and No Means No, a more sophisticated, almost prog punk thing. And some, some of my best friends too. Um, and both of those came up with so much stuff so quick, we got albums out of it. You know, there's a Jellaby offer with DOA and a Jellaby offer with No Means No. And there's a song about the falling space junk that's both on the soundtrack album and then an alternate version on the No Means No one because I couldn't figure out. I was trying to get the movie one together and then I was so frustrated I couldn't get a main point out. I wrote a second one, almost a sequel, where what would happen on Earth if everyone all of a sudden knew all at once that they were about to die all over the planet because of something like plutonium? How would they behave? What would they do? So that's the second one. Gonna go I wish I stores. could share this with our listeners because we are an audio show, but as Jello was talking about everyone on the planet having to deal with the fact that they're going to die, his cat just walked by him, and there's something about it that... <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, she's she's kind of looking out the window at something right now, or maybe she's in another trance. 
I named her moon unit. It's all too apropos whether I was sold a real moon unit instead of a cat. I don't know. She'll go into trances and I'm convinced it's sending and receiving transmissions from the moon, plotting new ways to torment me. But on top of that, right around the time I brought that kitten home, cattle mutilations started happening in the middle of our country again. And I thought, you know, what if it's not a big spaceship, but a bunch of little ones and it's moon units that are to blame, maybe all in cat form or maybe in another dimension or something else. Anyway, I digress back briefly to Terminal City Ricochet, where um, I was trying to conjure up this, you know, the king spook of Terminal City Ricochet. Okay, that's got to be a voyeur who like J. Edgar Hoover, who just likes to know everything and have the dirt on everybody, which Lyndon Johnson was kind of like that too. He'd just get a file from Hoover and read up on somebody he wanted to arm twist, even before he was president. But the little residential hotel they put me up in was across from some other apartment high rises, a little bit down the hill before Burrard Inlet in Vancouver. And you know, as the sun set, everybody had their lights on. And so I began watching them all, you know, not just one rear window, but dozens of them. You know, sometimes just watching that and, you know, populating it with, you know, sexy women of my own invention or whatever. And it would kind of make me horny. Sometimes even cruising through small towns with the lights on late at night will do that when I start putting people in the rooms and stuff. But anyway, so then lo and behold, you know, there I am in the bathroom one fine evening with some lube and I decided to masturbate as Bruce Cottle to see if I could get more character stuff and then thought, oh God, how can I not flip my recorder on and get this and document this? So I recorded the whole thing too. <laughs> and sure enough, later on, when we were going to have more songs for the album I was making with No Means No and they had a little swing punk thing going, I turned that into lyrics. And that's why it's called Bruce's Diary, where Bruce is never explained. It's just the diary. So all these things, from the space shuttle to trying to put this character together to music, past, present, and future, and acting, it all cross-pollinated at once. One thing. In a really good way. Yeah. The other thing I learned from that is I never wanted to be a movie director. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was always... One, one a, a little Walter Mitty thing, you know, another little feather in my cap, notch in my gun. But I thought, seeing how early Zale shows up and how much he's got to do and how late he leaves, and all the things he's got to be thinking about that I didn't realize directors have to think about and or producers have to think about as they're directing the director or whatever. I would not be good at this at all, nor would I enjoy it. End of movie director ambitions. So I yeah. got a hand. Well, to good, you, good for you. I want to, I want to, cause it's like, I'm, I'm constantly amazed. You see rock stars who want to become directors and I have no idea what's going on there. That, that seems like a major step down to me, but so I applaud it you. It wasn't for Rob Zombie. I, why would you want to do that? Power. Why would you, why would Joe, would you rather be a rock star or a director? Well, Joe would. Well, I can see the appeal of being a rock star, but it's, I don't, I don't have that talent and I don't have that need to, have thousands of people in a huge audience, you know, applauding me and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's it, directing is much more of a solitary thing. It's more of expressive 
you know, it's writing a book or something. I mean, it's not, uh, you're not, you're not, you know, doing music in front of people and that's a whole different vibe. Well, it's where your passions go, what drives you to do. And you've made so many, obviously you don't just do these because you want to, but because you have to. Yeah. No, I can't do anything else, which is. But there, I have known people (laughs) who have more than one area of talent that makes them kind of, you know, renaissance people in a way hank williams the third would be one just because he's so good at country and punk and metal and psychedelic and he's a great guitar player and a great drummer and everything else you know there's so many different things besides just being one thing and the same with ice t first hip-hop and one of the most important hip-hop pioneers there is and then Lo and behold, he puts a rock band together called Body Count. And they come up with the Born to be Wild of the 90s with Cop Killer. And, you know, one of my all-time favorite songs, I might add. Seeing 20,000 people, mostly super straight, you know, with their Sunday barbecue shorts on and stuff at Lollapalooza. Yeah, yelling "fuck the police" all at once. I mean, that that was pretty awesome. But anyway, you know, he does now a great procedural cop actor on uh, well yeah that, that that's a great <laughs> irony too now he's selling us tide detergent as well yes. i mean i asked him years ago um you know there's always a backlash if you do, do that one little bit of success in punk rock and you're a sellout i mean i even got my knee permanently snapped on the ground at a show because i was a sellout and then sued by greedy ex dead kennedy's a year later for not selling out and being in a levi's commercial but anyway um so, you know, how, why is it, or do you get this to, why is it that you don't seem to be getting this? And his reply was, look, where we come from, if somebody in the hood actually gets out and makes it, it's a source of pride. It's a victory for the hood. Sure. Yeah. And it, he, yeah. he also pointed out, back then he had a Rolls Royce dealership too. <laughs> and he told me a lot of people he hired to work there were people he had met in prison, oh. who he still know. I mean, there was a connection with early body count there yeah. too. Am I, I mean, Ice, how do you know where the, I mean, you, this would never work in punk rock. I mean, you can't trust punk rockers about anything. <laughs> you know, you have a punk rock record fair and there's something that everybody wants. It disappears immediately and nobody pays for it. Blah, blah, blah. No. <laughs> and, um, and, and he was like, you know, they fuck up once they're gone and they all know that, you know, but he's trying to get people back on their feet who he was loyal to right. and stuff. And I respect that. And, um, and then another, another example, you get back to Rob Zombie about some, rock star who wants to be a director i would argue he's almost better known or more successful with his films Mm -hmm. than he is with his music and his music and his live show are pretty goddamn top of the line and so but but he would be a case of another like jd wilkes from the legendary shack shakers where he sings he writes he plays a bunch of these instruments he's a master illustrator he draws comic books, he writes books, he makes films, whatever, and he can do all of that and does it well. And again, he just does what comes in and finds a way to get it done. And on a, a much larger audience and bigger budget, I think Rob is the same way. He can't not do these things. I mean, even before the movies, he was directing White Zombie and Rob Zombie videos, yeah. and they didn't look like anybody else's. One of them looks like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. 
you know, that was a very good idea on his part that nobody else thought of. And then um, you look at you look at the albums or even uh, the, the, the Astro Creep 2000 and stuff. It's not just that look that White Zombie cultivated. It was also there's all these illustrations in there and cartoons. And guess who drew it all? He did. And designed it was him. He knew that there's an animated movie he directed. And then there's the horror movies and everything else. That is not a rock star wishing he was a director. That is a Renaissance artist. Uh, yeah, you've got a point. You've got a point. That particular um, one, anyway. Well, isn't Jello? It, it's been uh, unbelievable uh, getting you to to talk about this stuff. And I'd love. I know you're also. And we barely scratched the surface. Um, I know you're also a horror guy. Um, if if uh, we would we would love to have you back at another point and maybe talk about some of those films that have moved you uh, along the way. Well, one was Saint Wing with Rob Zombie. He did well enough in Tinseltown, they let him direct more movies and actually yeah. paid for them, which is more than could be said for Charles Lawton after he handed them Night of the Hunter. Well, things have changed. Is that horror or is that not horror? That is, that is a horror film. Does this put well, Robert sure Mitchum in the category friend. of one of the great screen monsters? It sure does. I mean, they, the great screen monsters come in. I mean, Mitch McConnell is one. Richard Nixon is one. What's his name? Oh, come on. The guy who played the husband in Diary of a Mad Housewife, Richard Benjamin. Oh, my God, Richard Benjamin. One of my that husband is so horrible. Yes. <laughs> thinking he's really cool and charming. That is one teen, of the great screen monsters. Give it a roll in the Nor head. Norma Desmond. Is that a noir movie, Sunset Strip, or a horror or Boulevard, film. or is it a horror movie? And it's all because of that character of hers. And, you know, that's one of the great screen monsters. Will you promise me you'll come back and we can dive into that stuff, too? Oh, sure, one? as long as you'll have me. I'm not, I'm not a horror encyclopedia. I mean, no, you don't just, have to be. Just we don't like look my for taste that in films and in music and in visual art, I like what I like, I don't like what I don't like, and that's how I know anything. That's that's all we <laughs> all want. All right, to that cool. I see one corner of a Phoenix City poster. My Phoenix City poster. Yeah, you know, and th this is the way my mind reacted after I first he heard what the town was, found it on a map, and everything. I was like, wow. I wonder what the thrift stores are like there. I wonder what kind of records I could find in those stores. Uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for, for taking us on this trip with you. And if you decide to make a biopic of some he modern hero, like, oh, I don't know. How about Jared Kushner? Please consider me for the role. <laughs> uh, you're a dead ringer. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on what lens you use. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. There you Thank go. You. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies and Me. Stay safe out there, folks.
Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.